Hello and welcome to the Build with Clay podcast. I am your host, Clay Davis. This podcast is designed to introduce you to people from across the world who have one thing in common. They want to grow in their life and inspire others. You'll get a front row seat to hear about how they define their mindset and their purpose. We'll unearth their habits, their failures, and learnings throughout their journey. And this will allow you to take those habits, those failures, and those learnings and apply them to your personal growth journey, no matter where you're trying to build yourself and grow. This podcast is designed for you, so thank you for being here. Prepare to meet interesting people, hear fun stories, learn something new, and plan to leave inspired. On this episode, we build with Mary Catherine Connor. Mary Catherine is the director of Hayes Barton United Methodist Preschool. She's a native of Goldsboro, North Carolina, and holds a bachelor's degree in family and consumer sciences from Meredith College and a master's degree in early childhood intervention and family support from UNC Chapel Hill. Go Heels! She has her B through K, K through 6, and 7 through 12 teaching licenses. She has a vast resume of experiences, having been a teacher, department chair, and adjunct instructor at Moore Square Magnet Middle School, Needham Broughton High School, Skokabs, and Meredith College. Through her skillful leadership, Mary Catherine brought about instrumental change and success, not only in programming, but also in student achievement and staff support. The Wake County Public School System recognized her work by naming her Wake County's Diane Kent Parker First Year Teacher of the Year, Broughton High School Teacher of the Year, Wake County Teacher of the Year Finalist, WRAL Teacher of the Week, and the list goes on and on. This was such a fun conversation. We discuss so much in this episode beginning with her journey through early childhood education and some fun stories. We discuss how she has surrounded herself with amazing talent and what advice she has for young families and those about to enter the real world. As director of the preschool, Mary Catherine has been surrounded by 150 plus children for the last five years. And I've seen firsthand how she has transformed an environment that has positively impacted the lives of so many, including my own children. I want others to know her journey and what she's learned so that you can be inspired to grow. I have no doubt you'll enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, let's build with Mary Catherine Connor. Super excited to welcome Mary Catherine Connor to the podcast today. Mary Catherine, welcome. Thank you. I'm so, so excited. Uh, You have been on my list for a long time to invite to be a guest on my podcast And I've had the privilege of getting to know you, serving on the board of the preschool that you run. And I have two, soon to be three of my children that have attended that preschool. And although I've been in the same room with you many times and see you most weeks in the carpool line, if not daily, I feel like I've only scratched the surface of getting to know you. So selfishly, I'm extremely excited to dive in, get to know you, get to know your journey. And I'm beyond confident that the stories and advice and your journey that you're going to share today will inspire listeners to take something that they learned from you and apply it to their own growth journey. So I am just stoked to have you. And what I will start with is what I start with every guest is we're going to do some silly get to know you questions. So I'm going to fire away here. Would you rather be a little late or way too early? Way too early. Knew you were going to say that. I I get super anxious being late to anything. So that's an easy one. Would you rather send a text or make a phone call? Make a phone call. Mm. I think there's just some things that can't be shared over text. 
if you could only listen to one musical artist or band for the rest of your life, who would it be? Man, the rest of my life? You only get one. Van Morrison. Van Morrison. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Brown Eyed Girl? Is that Van Morrison? Yeah, that's Brown Eyed Girl. Yeah, he's Brown Eyed Girl. But that's kind of his, like, commercially music. Mm. I think mine is Boston. I grew up listening to classic rock with my dad, and so that's always nostalgic for me. Would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button for your life? I can be impulsive sometimes. I think a pause button. <laughs> Take a few deep breaths. But there's certainly moments in my life that I would love to rewind and experience again, especially with my children. That's a hard one. Can I say both? No. <laughs> okay, okay. So I was just at the moving up ceremony that you led for the class that's going to kindergarten, and you mentioned about pausing. This is why I gave you this question because you, you gave a gr- some great advice about pausing and because you have an older uh, son that's third grade, I think. That's right? second grade. Second, second grade. grade son and eighth grade daughter. Yeah. And just pausing and soaking in the summer before they go off to kindergarten. Yeah. I thought that was wonderful advice. All right. If you had to give up fruit or vegetables, which one would you give up? Probably vegetables. Um only because I love smoothies in the morning and I put, see, I put spinach in my smoothies. You're asking hard questions, Clay. Yeah, but I mean, fruit feels like a dessert, so I'm not giving that up. I'm right there with you. And I'm the same, I have the same challenge because I drink a smoothie most days and it's banana, spinach, usually like some sort of berries. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's pretty straightforward, but (laughs) too many good fruit desserts too. There's not any vegetable desserts. No, definitely not. All right, last one. Would you rather be fluent in all languages or the master of every musical instrument? Uh, master of every musical instrument. That could be put uh, to use at the preschool. Yes, yes. And it's probably one of my biggest regrets is quitting playing the piano as a young person. But I grew up in a family that loves music, and none of us are really that musically talented. <laughs> So, yeah, I would like to be that, that one in the family that could actually play music. My mom and dad, I'm going to use forced, let me use the word forced, forced me to take piano lessons when I was a kid. And I did not want to. All I wanted to do was play sports, like just put a ball in my hand. That's all I wanted to do. But, of course, they wanted me to be more well-rounded. So, so I yeah. started taking piano lessons from actually a member at the church. And... That was probably second grade to fifth grade. And I did recitals. I mean, I did the whole thing. I, was pra- I went to practice every week. If I sat down at a piano right now, I could not play a single thing. It's so sad. I have blocked it from my memory, I think. Same. And my last recital piece was Puff the Magic Dragon. So you think <laughs> I could play that, and I can't play that. <laughs> oh, it's too funny. Well, speaking of childhood, growing up, everything, obviously we're going to get into your journey. But I know you've got a fun story about your first car I do I do um so I had grand visions of what my first car would be and I should have caught a clue um when my brother received his car four years earlier my visions were unrealistic at that time um you know the the it cars were jeep cherokees and jeep wranglers and toyota forerunners 
I even had some bougie friends who had BMWs. But I vividly remember my dad pulling into the driveway with a 1985 Volkswagen Cabriolet. And I think it was actually called Cabriolet then. But you got to keep in mind, I was born in 1981. So this car, you know, was incredibly old by the time I was 16 and ready to drive. And kind of back to the car, I can remember being somewhat disappointed. It didn't even have a radio player. There was no CD player, cassette player, nothing. And so I looked at my dad and was like, oh, you know, thanks. This isn't exactly what I had in mind. I even, like, suggested a Honda Accord because I knew Honda Accords had radios. And I can remember him saying to me, if I give you a remotely nice car now, what do you have to look forward to in life? Like, he wanted me hungry. And that was kind of the beginning of lessons learned in that Volkswagen. All right, so back to this car. Um, I want to give you a clear picture of what it looked like. So the vinyl on the interior of the door panels were cracked significantly. My dad and I bought some Bobo vinyl repair kit at an automobile supply store in Goldsboro, and we tried to seal the cracks on our own. I can see him right now looking at me saying over and over, whatever you do, don't touch it while we are doing this. And definitely not once we finish. It is going to need to dry for like 24 hours. As we were wrapping up, my dad rested his entire arm on the meticulous work he had just finished on the passenger side. His hair was all in the vinyl repair kit that we had just completed. I was mortified. I mean, his hair was permanently embedded in my car door for all my friends to see. And I think I was probably in the middle of a rant and my dad looked at me and shared lesson number two in that Volkswagen. And he said, if you have friends that evaluate you as a person by your car or this repair job, those aren't friends worth keeping. It stopped me in my tracks and I certainly listened. So not even a week later, I'm going to share with lesson number three. We decided to take it for a spin on the back roads of Wayne County for me to begin learning how to drive a manual transmission because this car had a stick. Another important skill my dad felt like all young people should know was how to drive a stick. When he was in college, he was, oh, really? Oh, yeah. I think that's, I mean, I would, that's not on my priority list for my own children. It's not not on mine either, but yeah. (laughs) When he was in college, he was able to make deliveries for the drugstore he worked in because he was the only person who knew how to drive a stick. So he thought that this was a valuable skill. I was in tears trying to learn, um, especially on hills. But another profound moment occurred in that car. And I thank God I was awake enough to hear the message. But he said, you really think Volkswagen would make a car that people couldn't learn to drive? You have this, like be patient with yourself. And there have been so many times in my life when I have watched people frustrated to the point of failure, given completely up, you know, like assembly of a piece of furniture or solving a puzzle or even like more complex problems within a system that seem unsolvable. And I have said to myself, and sometimes even out loud, you really think Volkswagen would make a car that people couldn't learn to drive? So it's just funny, like, I I haven't thought about it in a while, but 
you know, one of the questions that you sent me was a story that kind of captured my childhood. And I think my parents are going to think it's hilarious that that's my glimpse. I'm choosing to share because I'm certain they think that car is insignificant to the Pate family history, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. Wow. That brings back a lot of memories about me driving, but this is, <laughs> a podcast is not about me. So I'll, I'll save those for off recording, but well, I love those three lessons. And I think it weaves really nicely into a question I ask all my guests, which is how would you define a growth mindset? This is something I'm trying really hard to instill in my 14 year old daughter who has a serious fear of failure. And I think she may have gotten that from me. I'm actually certain she got that from me, (laughs) but people with a growth mindset believe that ability can change as a result of effort, practice, perseverance. They see mistakes as a way to learn. Um, I'm really trying to teach her to take risk and embrace challenges. I think we are designed to learn from struggle. My bar three instructor this morning said there is strength in the struggle And I thought a lot about that as, I mean, I was about to collapse doing like 90 bridge lifts in that moment, but I love it when they share those nuggets during exercise class. But really as a parent, for me, this looks like not trying to fix everything and letting my children experience sadness and disappointment, which isn't always easy. Uh, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago and she said that everyone could write a memoir titled not exactly as planned. (laughs) And this is certainly true for my life, but I am glad when I look back that I can say I persisted in the face of setbacks. I think that's a growth mindset. Yeah. And instilling that in children is difficult. I'm not at the stage you are yet. My oldest is seven. And so trying to do it from a young age, but I can imagine it gets harder, especially as the social and peer pressures start to come into play. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to be, you don't want to stand out for anything. Right. Yeah. But I like that. We, I like what you said. We're designed to learn from struggle. And I think that's absolutely true. I definitely think that's true. I, with, uh, Hayes, I recall him sitting with my dad when he was about a year and a half old and he was just sitting on my dad's lap at his desk and he was pulling out that middle drawer and closing it. My dad was showing him how to open it and close it. And I remember letting him, letting him slam his finger in the drawer to close it and tears ensued. But the next, but then just like most babies do, they get over it pretty quickly and he closed the door the next time and moved those little fingers out of the way at the very last second. Yeah. And you learn you learn from that. You learn from your failures. And he had, you know, Hayes had failed in closing a drawer <laughs> and then he didn't do it again. So I, I like you have some of those, uh, you know, like the Volkswagen using Volkswagen as your example in future, I say, just let them slam their fingers in the drawer. That's, that's one of my go-to yeah. sayings. Cause if they don't, how are they supposed to know? It's hard though. I think this new generation oh. of parents has kind of lost sight that we don't have to fix everything. Yeah. I agree. And I think we could probably go down a, we, maybe we'll touch on that at some point, <laughs> but first <laughs> okay. I would like to ask about your why or your purpose. I ask every guest that, and you're going to be no different. So how would you define what your purpose or your why is in life, Mary Catherine? 
Well, I think I have a professional why and then a personal why. And my professional why is really about the period from birth to eight years old is one of remarkable brain development for children and kind of represents a crucial window of opportunity for education. So I feel really lucky that I get to work with children during that season. And when children are healthy and safe and learning well in their early years and being taught by highly trained, creative and collaborative teachers, they are better able to reach their full potential as adults. So when I began to search for high quality early childhood education settings for my own children in a resource rich area like Raleigh, I was surprised that I didn't have that many choices. And so that kind of became my why to go back into the early childhood setting to work. But my personal why is really simple. It's just to ensure that my children and my husband feel seen, loved, and safe, which is kind of like my professional why. But I would say that would be my my why or my purpose in life. Yeah, I was going to challenge you a bit because I think if you think about people, when you think about your why, a classic thing is to separate it by the areas of your life, but really they intersect as you were starting to, starting to talk that they start, they start to intersect because your personal life and your professional life, they're the same. It's your life and your why remains constant. Now the people it applies to, it could be your husband or your, your kids or your, the families of the preschoolers, um, or the community. But I think your why is, uh, applicable in whatever setting, if, if you've like dug deep enough to find it and it's hard, it's hard to find it and it evolves, but, um, it's fun to watch you live your why through the eyes of someone who has kids at the school that you run. You have certainly created that space. You've designed that space in Raleigh for a place for families to be and for kids to be, to feel safe, feel seen, learn all those things in that, that zero to eight years of age. So you should give yourself a big pat on the back for what you've created. I have a really talented team that makes me look good. So kudos and I wanna, to really I, good I, teachers. I want to ask about retaining talent, but we're going to, that's fast forwarding too far in the journey. Okay. So okay. let's, let's bring it back to the Volkswagen. All right. You're in the, you're in the Volkswagen, the, your dad's hairs in the vinyl. <laughs> and, um, I imagine, I'm guessing, that you drive this car to your first job um, or your first set of jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Life. So how yeah, how did definitely. those, what, what were your like first jobs and how did they influence who you are today? Well, my first like pay stub job, I babysat a ton. That's how I fell in love with working with children. But my first like pay stub was as a receptionist at a chiropractor's office in Goldsboro. Um, Dr. Nels Nelson was right there on Ash Street, which is like the main drag of Goldsboro. He gave me so much rope. At the end of my time there, he he made me feel like I was running his office during after school hours. Um, He paid me extra to create a staff training guide. He incentivized me when his days were smartly scheduled. Um, I learned a lot about working with people then. Um, one of the things that I did for him was write a little post-it note 
notes inside of patients' charts, just giving him conversation starters. Like she just made the JV basketball team, ask her about it. Or they just moved into assisted living. I can tell they're concerned. And I remember the first time I did it and he came out of his office and he was a man that used a lot of curse words. And he said something like, this is effing brilliant. And from that point on, I remember being kind of hooked on words of affirmation. And I, I really started to appreciate the fact that I was seeing his patients before he was seeing his patients. And I was kind of helping him be able to care for them better. But then that was that was kind of, you know, what I felt like was my first big girl job. But I went to Meredith College, um, and Meredith has a way of convincing women that they can do anything, despite the world sometimes saying otherwise. So when I graduated from there, it didn't feel like a big jump to teach at Broughton High School, which I know you know. Diane Payne was the principal then, and she was a, a powerful female figure in Wake County Public Schools at that time. And she believed I would be able to get a possible early childhood education program off the ground because it was a career technical education program. We received like federal, state and county funding, and we were able to establish an articulation agreement with Wake Tech Community College. And so students were graduating from high school with credentials to go and work immediately into an early childhood setting. But picture this, like I'm a month away from turning 23. And I've given a tremendous amount of money and I'm being kind of tasked with creating all these work-based learning experiences for high school students in the early childhood setting. So this was kind of the beginning of me creating like business partnerships, which was really fun. But I think how this ties in with my Volkswagen is I had to drive a minibus to take these students to where they needed to go all around Raleigh. And Jack Spain was the athletic director at Broughton at that time. And he was, he was pretty fanatical about the materials that the athletic department owned. And one of those was the buses. And so he looks at me, I've been working at Broughton like two days. And he said, the only bus I'm going to give you midday is a manual transmission. So you better learn how to drive a stick before Monday. He was genuinely surprise when I hopped in and said, not a problem. <laughs> uh, so I I love to think about like all the moments that I learned of, you know, like life lessons in that Volkswagen. But that was one of those moments where I just got in the car and I thought, thanks, dad. Like, you're right. I need to know how to drive a stick. It um, all led to that. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, you made a comment. You said smartly scheduled. Caught my ear. Oh, yeah. Okay. Define define smartly scheduled. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't schedule really complicated patients back to back. I started to figure out like timing wise how long certain patients would take and people who were more long winded I wouldn't put back to back and I I found it really satisfying when we were kind of optimizing like the time he had in his day. But he also was feeling like he was serving all of his patients well. How do you feel like you yeah, use I mean, that today? I, oh, my gosh, all the time. I am obsessed with efficiency. Uh, so I think that that was kind of the beginning, though, of me seeing, like, that these small decisions matter in his overall, like, ability to provide care to patients, but also in his 
ability to have like the stamina to make it through the day. I, I don't think he even realized how much I learned in that setting. Like even writing the personnel handbook. I mean, we didn't really have a strong personnel handbook when I came to the preschool and I was still pulling on some of those things that I learned working there. That's the great thing about my job now is I feel like every job I've had has led me to this job. Mm. I'm going to dig a little bit and this may go nowhere and we may come. Okay. Okay. I love efficiency. I'm driven by efficiency as well. So two kindred spirits right here. I'm curious, like specifically what you do to drive, like if you think about it schedule wise, like how are you driving efficiencies today in your life, personal work, whatever, like what are the things that come to mind? I think it's really hard for teachers because they have so much on their plates. Um, They balance so much. And so occasionally I'll just say like, is that a need to, you know, like I'll, I'm constantly examining why we do the things that we do. And I do think that we've in education done things for a really long time and don't have a why behind it. We, we don't really know why we do these things and if it's even meaningful to the kids or to the families. And so I think getting back to the basics is probably how I found the most efficiency in preschool. Like let's focus on what matters more than anything else. And really in the early childhood setting, especially coming out of a pandemic, it's social and emotional development. And if we're not having meaningful, rich conversations with kids while they're playing, then we're not doing the important work. Mm. So it's like saying no. Do I? Okay. Ah, a lot. Yes, yeah, so I'm a person that's like, if it's if it's not a hell yes, it's not a yes. I think that's how I've achieved more efficiency at preschool. And then everything else. I mean, carpool. Like, I've... We rethought everything, and now I think our carpool runs about like a Chick-fil-A line. Um, It's pretty efficient considering we're getting a lot of kids put in car seats, um, which is just another layer of complexity for the preschool setting. It reminds me of, I think it was the British cycling team. They, it was this whole mantra around uh, incremental gains. So they just wanted to get 1% better at basically everything. 1% better at their sleep, 1% better at their, you know, quad strength, 1% better at their calf strength, 1% better at how clean their bikes were. I mean, they went to crazy lengths for like a couple years straight to get 1% better in literally every single thing. And they went from never meddling, never, you know, really being competitive at all in world cycling events to being number one in the world after getting 1% better yeah. at basically everything. And of course, I'm sure they got 2% or 5% or 10% better in some areas, but they looked at every single little detail and tried to just get a hair better. And it's amazing how much that compounds over time, which is, seems like that that's been your, one of the focus areas of focus since you've been the preschool director. What I think like we only have really like three hours and 45 minutes of instructional time in a, half day preschool morning, right? Like there's not a lot of time. And so if we're not being efficient with it, you know, the kids aren't getting very much. Um, so I think, I think the teachers have really come to appreciate too, that I've tried to focus on what matters. So when you tell a teacher, 
you know, teacher says, Hey, I, I have to, you know, decide between these two things or, 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 you know, should I be doing this? Or maybe I want to do this. And in your, let's, let's use the example. Hey, I want to do this with the kids. And in your mind, you're thinking that we shouldn't prioritize that, but obviously they're, they want to do it for whatever reason. How do you, <laughs> how do you handle that moment? Well, we always do this thing at the beginning of the school year, like big rocks, it's just kind of a protocol that we do at that first staff meeting. And so I often will go back to, is this one of our big rocks? And then, you know, I always frame every ask is, is this in the best interest of the kids? And if the teacher can't, <laughs> can't answer that question, then it usually starts another conversation. I will say though, that I have surrounded myself at the preschool with people who have a shared vision. So I don't have many of those conversations, but I also want to, to, you know, be approachable and be able to have, yes. And be able to have those difficult conversations, but it is sometimes hard to go back to, this is what we said was most important you know, at the beginning of the year, because that's a shared experience. I don't, I don't drive what the big rocks are. We determine what the big rocks are. And oftentimes just by questioning, the teacher will typically say, Oh, wait a minute. I didn't really think about it through that lens. This isn't as, as important. Autonomous teachers, though, are happy teachers. And so I also do not micromanage what their classrooms look like as long as it aligns with best practice. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that goes for corporate America too. Is I, I would most, I would imagine. Yeah, most people want yeah. autonomy and feel respected when they have autonomy, and as long as they're going in the general direction of the big rocks, and that's another term used in the corporate America, uh, yeah. then you're okay. And you want people not going off the rails, but you want people doing things a little bit differently. That's how you experiment and learn, Absolutely. and try things. Yeah, it's a good thing. All right. Definitely. So we'll go back to your journey. I took us down a rabbit hole. I'm going to pull us back out of the rabbit hole. We got the first couple of jobs. You go to Broaden High School. You develop, you're young. You develop this early education. You drive a stick shift minibus, um, which I'm sure <laughs> yeah. just has stories beyond stories uh, of just what uh, happened so many. on those buses. <laughs> um, so many. But so let's pick it up there. What kind of where, where'd you go from there? I experienced a, a lot of success as a classroom teacher. And I, I can say that that job I really, really loved. I hope teachers start to be valued because I would love to end my career in a Wake County classroom again. But I do think it's going to take teachers to be treated and paid fairly um, for me to go back. But I then, gosh, I moved into all sorts of roles within Wake County Public Schools, intervention coordinator, career development coordinator, which was creating a lot of those business partnerships um, that kind of took what we were doing in the early childhood setting to the whole school across different content areas. I taught at Meredith College, which was really, really fun. I taught child development and education classes. And I think a lot of my professional peers think that when I went to the preschool, I, I com- committed career suicide. But I felt... Wait, why is that? Re- I think because in the post-secondary setting, especially like in the college setting, people think that you stay within that 
that academic field, you know, and you become published and you teach more advanced classes, you would never go to work where you worship and mm. run half day preschool program, which, you know, the grand scheme of things serves 165 children. I think they didn't think I was going to have as much impact, but it is, I mean, it's fascinating. Every single job I did, I feel like led me to, to this particular position, but the position did at preschool stay vacant for a while. Amy Mathias was the previous preschool director and she was so loved in our community. I don't think anybody wanted to follow her. So I mean, I remember the posting being in our church bulletin for months before I said that I would sit before the board and interview. But yeah, even then, what prompted you to do that? Like why? uh, Joanna McMillan. Joanna McMillan. Uh, She was the reason. So anyone in Raleigh knows how legendary she was. But she, every Sunday morning, she would see me and she would point to the bulletin and say, you know, this job has got your name written all over it. And she would say things like, you know, you you can balance it, you know. And I kept saying, I, Joanna, I don't want to know how the sausage is made. Like, I like just coming to church and worshiping. I don't want to get within the system. And she was, she would just say, the families need you. Our church families need you. So she truly is the reason why I took the job. And then unfortunately we lost her about a year into to me doing this work, but all roads lead back to Joanna. I mean, I hired her daughter last year to teach with us. I played competitive flag football with her daughter for uh, 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think extremely highly of Joanna and and her family. That's, uh, that's neat. I didn't realize she was the one. And it's funny how, of course, all these jobs and these things that you've done in your life led you to where you are today, but it's the action of one person sometimes. One person. And she was such a large, wonderful personality that I could totally see her eyeing you and saying, I've never been more sure of anything in my life that you need to be the preschool director and I'm going to bug yeah. you about it until you realize it too. Yes. I mean, she's a force and she was not someone you could say no to. But yeah, she is. She's the reason why I'm at the preschool. We're bouncing around on the journey a lot, but that tends to happen out here. I want to go back to your childhood. We're talking about early childhood and how you support early childhood. I want to go back to your early childhood. And I'm curious what your parents did for a living and how that influenced you. I've not talked much about my mom yet. So this gives me an opportunity to talk about my mom. She was a homemaker. Uh, She was beyond devoted. She somehow managed to, you know, keep a spotless house, laundry done, food always in the pantry, first in the carpool line. I had friends that were jealous that she was my mom and randomly, I mean, I would never do this for my own children. So I can, I can say this, but randomly she would pull up into the high school cafeteria. There was a parking lot where I went to school and she would bring me a hot lunch. And I always loved it. I mean, sometimes she would bring me like a subway meatball sub. And I thought that was like so special, but she made being a stay-at-home mom look easy when you and I both know it is not. No. Um, and then my dad was a small business owner. He owned a electrical contracting company. Um, shout out to Wayne Electric. <laughs> it's a company his father started, and now my brother owns and operates. 
So it's pretty cool that it's been in our family for three generations. But I really watched how he treated his employees. Uh, lots and lots of grace always. And they they respected the heck out of him for it. So I also feel like I try to to model his leadership style even today. Hmm. I'm going to pull out another two word thing. You said meatball sub. (laughs) And when I was, uh, (laughs) when I was, when I was in college, I was notorious for going to the gym and then going to subway afterwards and ordering two foot long meatball subs and eating. I'm like 150 pounds soaking wet. Like I weigh nothing. And I would eat both of them before, like a, another guy would go with me and get like a six inch sub. And I would eat my two foot long meatball subs before he finished his six, six inch sub. I, I used to just inhale those things. And now I don't even think I can walk into a subway. I mean, the smell, is uh, just, it's just, uh-huh. it sticks with you. Disgusting. It stays. Yeah. I don't think I've, I don't think I've eaten a subway sub since my senior year of high school. <laughs> it was, it was my, my love language then. I loved it. What a mom though come in hot with the hot lunch so your mom's love love language was probably acts of service acts of acts of service mine's definitely words of affirmation mine is definitely acts of service no doubt well are you talking about when you give love or you or you receive how you want to receive well you often give love the way in which you want to receive love that's true i think that's true for me actually my husband yeah. is definitely acts of service, which at this stage of my life, I really appreciate <laughs> him emptying the dishwasher every single day. Feels like love to me now. Mm. Well, Mary Catherine, I think you're a wonderful human being and I want you to know that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I already feel better. <laughs> All right. So we've got your journey going from, you know, seeing your mom and dad, your, da- your dad working in a small business, your mom being at home to you driving a Volkswagen with hair all in the vinyl to uh, working in a we number sold of that car with, we, we sold that car with the hair in the vinyl. Did they know the hair did. was in the vinyl? I mean, if they had eyes, they knew it, <laughs> it was... because everybody else in town knew it. <laughs> yeah. Just going around Goldsboro and then into all the early childhood education. So there's a lot of people that say, go find your passion, go find your jo- the one job, stick with it, grow through it you kind of did the opposite is you bounced around because you saw different opportunity. Like what, what in your life made you think like, I need to, I need to experience all these different roles. Well, I'm a person that I get restless when I feel like I've figured something out. And so I have bounced when I felt like, okay, I've, I've got this. I now need to do something else. I did have really great principals who believed in me and would say like, okay, it's time to move on. You got to do something else, you know? So I think that certainly helped, but I, I do have enough ADHD that, and I mean, truly like diagnosed, like I'm not just using that term, but that I do need to be challenged and I need some variety professionally. I think that's part of the reason why I love where I am now is because there's a lot of spontaneity in early childhood education. Sure. No, no one day looks the same. Well, I will speak as a board member and on behalf of the board that there is plenty of challenges left at our preschool 
there. You, oh, there is. <laughs> you, in the most lovely way possible, there's plenty to do there. You don't need to go anywhere. Plenty of challenges left. Yeah. <laughs> and there are. And we'll, I mean, every year, like, it's like a new goal. Like, I'll tackle something else that I want to see different, changed. You've been at the preschool five years? Is that mm-hmm. right? Five years, and over that time, I know you've surrounded yourself with a lot of talent. So this is kind of two-parter here. I want to understand from you the advice you have to to attract top talent, and then it's one thing to attract it. It's another thing to retain it, especially in education in North Carolina. Yeah. So how do you go about attracting and retaining talent? That's a great question. I think talent begets talent. I mean, I felt like when I started recruiting really, really strong teachers, they brought other strong teachers with them. I think as women, sometimes we get into a terrible habit of feeling threatened by people who are smarter than us, but I find it inspiring. Like I want to be surrounded constantly by people who I think are smarter than me. And that's kind of what I've done at the preschool And then once we hire the best teachers, we give them freedom to make decisions in the best interest of kids, which is kind of like what I said before. Um, Aside from like school-wide expectations and like, you know, agreed upon building norms, I do not sweat the small stuff because I don't have to. I really do give them a wide berth for deciding what's best for their own classrooms. And somewhere along the way, in education, the system has shifted and a lot of curriculum is scripted and there are pacing guides associated with how you teach and what you teach because there's standardized assessments at the end that hold teachers at really high stakes. And so I think in the preschool setting, we've really gotten back to a love of teaching and learning And what that looks like is really up to the classroom teacher. So in some parts, just the job itself recruits great teachers because they, they want to feel like they have the ownership of the classroom. Um, But I also think that people who are really good, really skilled want to be surrounded by other people who are really skilled. And that's, the feeling that we get when we walk around, you know, in the morning and listen to people lead morning meetings and circle times with their kids. I also think collaboration, like we've created a very collaborative environment. How have you created that? What kind of started out as like age level teams. And it was to kind of bring all the four-year-old teachers together, the three-year-old teachers together. That's right. Yeah. And it was, I had, I was being selfish because I didn't want the teachers to have to work more than their, you know, designated hours in the day that they were being compensated for. And so I was trying to get them to start to spread the the workload. And so, you know, you write the weekly email, you plan the science lessons, you plan the literacy lessons. And so we were kind of splitting up the job and we were really capitalizing on people's skill sets. Um, But I do think that that collaborative piece there, there are certain teachers that thrive in it. And then there are certain teachers that don't. And if you work 
at Haynes Barton, United Methodist Preschool, you, you have to be willing to collaborate with your peers. And so that's kind of one of those norms that we've set. But thankfully, everyone we've recruited loves it. Being a classroom teacher, it's just you're living in a silo if you don't have those opportunities to meet with other teachers. Yeah, because it seems like the autonomy, the empowerment that's given obviously attracts and retains the talent. But it also seems like the other option for most of these teachers once they're in this environment is to go to an environment like the public school system that doesn't do that. Yeah. Which stinks. It does. It really does. And I will say that the other piece of the puzzle is a lot of the women that we're all, we're all women that work at the preschool have young families and I just, I let them take care of their families first. I don't really track leave, you know, beyond we know when they've taken more than they need, but I don't, I don't care. Like I just, I let them take care of their families. And I know that high quality classroom teacher is more important than she needs to work four days this week and not five. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. I mean, cause also you're, you're further giving them ownership of their classroom. Like, Hey, if I need to, yeah. and of their of what they need to do in their life, how they prioritize their life. If the child's sick or there's something's going on or they have a vacation, like go, go do it. I know your classroom will be yeah. here when you get back because we have other teachers that can fill in that trust that you build. Because I, I tend to think of this from a corporate standpoint because that's what I've grown up in. And I've been a part of organizations that track your leave, not minute by minute, but what it feels like minute by minute. And then others where they treat it like you have treated where it's just, Hey, we trust you. The handbook says that you have X number of days, but we're not going to track it. If you take one more, one less, 10 more, 10 less, like as long as you're getting your work done and you're accomplishing the goals that we set out and working towards those big rocks, it's all good. Right. And you just feel like you're treated like a human and not a, you know, a cog in the machine basically. And right. that goes a long way when you start to go look for another job and you know, you're leaving that type of environment to an unknown environment. Like, wow, like they've treated me like a human when, you know, certain things happened in my life or I needed certain support. It makes it a lot harder to leave that type of culture than a culture that treats you like a piece of machinery. Yeah. And unfortunately, and, I think there's I mean, a lot we, of people that are a lot of corporations that are going to the machinery aspect, which stinks. Yeah. When really good teachers establish such strong routines that, I mean, we have some classrooms that we don't even need a classroom teacher in there. They could lead the morning meeting. They could lead their circle time. They could lead centers. They could transition to specials. I mean, it is fascinating to watch how really good teachers establish such strong routines that it becomes second nature to the kids. Hmm. You are surrounded by these kids day in and day out. You said 165 kids? Between one and five, basically, every day for the last five years. What do you learn from that age group that you desperately want the rest of the world to know? They are so present. Like, that's, that's been the thing that I probably noticed more than anything. Like, they are just not distracted by the noise that we are distracted by. They are incredibly curious. 
They ask the most hilarious questions, sometimes really inappropriate questions that keep us all laughing. They're also incredibly resilient. I mean, during the pandemic, when you know I was receiving daily emails from parents, just want them wanting me to know where they stood on protocols and practices that we had implemented during the pandemic. And then I would go into the the child's classroom of the parents that had just sent me an email and I would watch the child and the, the child was so happy and so engaged and not bothered at all by mask teachers or increased hand washing or operating. You know, we did those cohort classrooms, which bothered some of our families and the kids, oh, the kids didn't care. care less. They did not they care. Did not care. Yeah. It mattered um, and so I would way often, more to the I parents. Would, yeah. And I often would like read the email and take a moment before responding, but I would usually always take a few minutes to go and look at the child and say like to myself, like, okay, this is a well-adjusted, happy, engaged child. And I need to respond, you know, with that intel. I remember Hayes, so he's probably four years old, roughly, when all this was happening, and he was at the preschool, and multiple times, recall, picking him up from preschool, and this is like height of COVID, things are crazy, half the country wants one thing, half the country wants the other thing, and Hayes would get in the car with his mask still on, because at the time, they had to wear their masks, and we would be halfway home, and he would still have his mask on. Yes, that's the same as my children. They're just like, they, they just care. didn't care. They didn't care at all. They, I was like, hey, do you want to take your mask off? He was like, oh, sure, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> it's just another thing. It, whatever. So to your point on yeah. resiliency, it's just, yeah, they cared way less. <laughs> they didn't care at all about it, which is a beautiful thing when the whole world was going crazy. Well, that's good. Yeah, being present, I, I reference that a lot with the kids. It's amazing. I am so envious of how present they can be. Someone asked me one time, what's the attribute, if you could gift to your future son or daughter one attribute, what would it be? And I said curiosity. Because I, I I just think if you can ask the right questions and you can be genuinely curious about another human being, about how something works, about whatever in life, that amazing things will happen. And you learn so well, much. Job well, job well done. Because Walker and Hayes both. Are so curious. Can't wait to get to know Mr. Wills. But yeah, they're your first two definitely are. They're very curious beings. The 165 kids, but you also have your kids at home. You've been a parent for a while now. What perspective has parenthood provided you? As a new parent, I spent huge amounts of time trying to parent the right way. I researched Quote, everything unquote. from, oh, yeah. Everything from feeding to sleep to stimulating play. Eventually, I realized that there's no right way to parent. I mean, sure, there's some ways that are destructive. We know to avoid those. But what works for my child may not work for your child. And heck, what, what worked this morning may not work after lunch. I've learned to be flexible and willing to change my approach when something isn't working. So I no longer lock myself into one specific method. And I, I follow my gut far more than I do a book I've read. I don't know if you feel this way or if others feel this way, but I also think more than anything, I live with a lot more compassion. My empathy runs so much deeper now 
my children's pain is my pain. And I view the world through this lens, which I didn't before, but everyone is someone's child. And it has allowed me to see all sides of a situation and ultimately live with more kindness. Watching my children grow into people has made me realize that everyone is doing their best. We get into this this seat of judgment sometimes, but I try to even parent teacher conferences and difficult phone calls with families. Like I always say to myself, like they are doing their absolute best. And it is, it has made me more compassionate about societal things too. Like thinking like equity and social justice and inclusion. It's just made me more passionate about ensuring that everyone is more or is treated with respect, no matter who they are all because I would want that same respect shown to my children. So I think that's it. I think it's, there is no right way. And I live with a lot more compassion. The default being that everyone is doing their best is a great default state to be in. It can be difficult at times, but I think right now the, the default is the opposite. I completely agree. And I'll even sometimes frame you know, difficult conversations with my own children, with people I work with, you know, I am doing the best I can do right now just to remind them that like, I have great intentions. You know, the follow through sometimes may not look the way in which you want it to look, but I'm doing the best. I always go back to this concept of hurry. I think that we're all in a hurry. There's the book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Oh, I love that book. Yep. And I think with parenting, especially that we can be in a hurry. Oh, we have this meeting we got to get to. We got to get in the car because we have to get to this thing on time. Or it's just everything's in a hurry. And if you're in a hurried state, it's a lot easier to get agitated, to lose patience, to not be in the present moment, to be in inflexible. And eliminating or doing our best to reduce the amount of hurry that we're in, especially with our kids, I think can lend a lot of benefits. I had this amazing nanny when I first went back to the classroom after having Mary Knowles and she timed how long she was a math, former math teacher. She timed how long it took her to get her daughter and my daughter into the car. And she said, it takes 11 minutes for me to get from, you know, the kitchen to the car, then buckled. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting that you've timed this. And she was like, I know, but I allow 19 minutes because there's, I want, I want to have a buffer of eight minutes to be able to answer any questions they may have, or if they fall, I want to be able to take care of them. And I remember thinking then like, wow, you are the perfect nanny for my daughter because you have allowed this buffered time to be able to address the in the moment needs that oftentimes as parents, we, we forget, mm-hmm. we don't allow the extra time for that. And it's increasing, it, it's increasing the margin, the buffer, the margin of, yes, of time. And to go back to what you were talking about earlier around scheduling and being efficient and all of that, saying no if it's not a hell yeah you said if it's not a hell yeah it's a no saying saying no gives you margin gives you buffer 
but yeah. the more stuff you pile on to yourself or to your family or to your life, the less margin you're going to have. Therefore, the more of a hurry you're going to be in and probably not to have the same level of connection with your friends, with your, your children, but it's, it's really hard. It's, it's hard. It's also just hard to say no to things. Well, and I think there's even, I mean, you're getting ready to, you're getting ready to enter this phase of life, but especially in our community, there seems to be this idea that like overscheduled kids are going to be more successful when in fact it's the opposite. There just needs to be time, you know, to lounge, to play outdoors, you know, to be in community with your neighbors or with your church. Like it, that has been fascinating to me. And because my children are a good six years apart, I've even gotten to see this shift from my 14 year old to my eight year old where, I mean, it is the, the schedules that some of these kids juggle are intense. How do you know what to say yes to and what to say no to with your kid's schedule? Well, I let their curiosities drive a lot of our decision-making, especially around extracurricular activities. And I mean, there's sometimes where they are like wanting to do something like team, and I'm like, oh, great. Like that's a massive commitment in the month of May, you know, like when all hell's breaking loose at work. But I mean, we just have a couple yeses, church youth group and tennis, taekwondo and swim team. Like it, we can't have, we can't all be running in 10 different directions or we're going to, I've, I've told my husband many times before, like if I have to outsource carpool to a babysitter, we're overscheduled. So if he and I can't handle getting the kids where they need to be, we've got a problem. And so we, we try to manage getting the kids where they need to be because it's a measurement for us. That's mm. our measure of whether or not we're overscheduled. And that's a very simple measure. If you're starting to yep. order Ubers for your 14 year old daughter, you should probably. <laughs> we got a problem. We got a problem. <laughs> the, yeah, gosh, we could. We're probably going to say this for the second podcast that we do, um, but <laughs> okay. there's a lot that we can go into on this because I have a lot of questions for you and a lot of, a lot of curiosity. But it reminds me, this conversation reminds me of a book called Range by David Epstein, I believe, where he talked about how the most successful people in the world didn't go super deep in one area. They got a range of expertise across right. a lot of different areas. Right. So the best basketball players in the world played football, played basketball, yes. bowled, played golf, like did all these different things and then applied those learnings and those things across from their thing and then went deep in one area maybe. Eventually. But didn't do that until later. Exactly. On life. Exactly. They didn't yeah. And but you're right, I think that there's a societal pressure, especially in sports. Um or in and in arts actually too to, Hey, if you want to be the best, you got to devote your life to this when you're six and, yeah. and do it year round, right? Do it year, year round. round and sacrifice. Like you said, just the, the joys of being a, a child and yeah. that sucks. It does. There's a, it was like an E60 or, you know, one of those ESPN specials about Norwegian sports. And it was that very thing. I mean, they have laws in place that limit how long seasons can be, how expensive they are, and when kids can specialize in sports. And I thought, why do we not adopt some of those principles in America? But it is interesting. Like my brother living in eastern North Carolina, like he doesn't experience the same pressure that I feel like we do in Raleigh, hmm. which I also find fascinating. 
Yeah, faster pace of life. I don't know. I, I always go back to the hurry. Like everyone's just in a hurry. Everyone wants their kids to grow up. Everyone wants their kids to be this and that and the other. And some of the best times in life are when you're just doing something spontaneous, even for 10 minutes, yeah. 30 minutes. And, oh, we had yeah. nothing scheduled this morning. Wonderful. Let's Perfect. let's just go play outside. Let's find a yeah. cardboard box and a stick and go make a fort. Yeah. Yep. All right. I got a couple quick fire ones as we're coming up on our time here. Okay. This one may not be quick, but in the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? Women need women. I think that morning workouts with girlfriends have been so life-giving. And then I have a newly formed covenant group that also holds me accountable and keeps me thinking and leaves me feeling seen and nurtured. So I think that more than anything, I have found myself, I need to be in community with other women. How often? Every morning. (laughs) I work out with two women in particular that got me through COVID Mm. and got me, and it got me through things personally too, but they both happen to be a little older than me, which I, you know, is kind of interesting And so I've watched how they have raised their children the last few years. I take notes constantly, but they've kind of challenged me to reflect just on decisions I've made. And it's, it's just funny that it's been at bar three and on walks and treading in the deep end of the pool. Like it's funny where I have found that community, but I, I, I think I was missing it at the beginning of COVID because I was so consumed by the decision-making that was required of me in those early stages of creating the protocols. And I, I sort of got depressed. And then I realized like, oh, wait, like I'm missing my community of girlfriends. If you had a magic wand and could change one thing about education. Oh gosh, Clay. Oh gosh. One thing about education, what would you do? The most important thing in education is the quality of the classroom teacher. Nothing else matters if the quality of the classroom teacher is not is not good. So pay teachers more, treat them like humans, value their role in the greater system. One hundred I mean, without question that it's it all goes down to the morale of the classroom teacher. What is the amount that a teacher should be making given that they're quality teacher have the, all the credentials. Like what is the amount that the state of North Carolina needs to get to? Well, I mean, I feel like in the area that we live in, maybe I'm overstepping or I'm speaking with a lens of privilege, but I mean, I feel like most professions in the triangle are, are hitting six figures and it's, totally unfair that that is a really unrealistic goal for a tenured teacher. The only way you're going to hit six figures is if you are a principal. And just because you're a really good teacher doesn't mean you want to be a principal. It requires a totally different skill set. So I, I just find it unfortunate that I know teachers who have been teaching 30 years who have incredible careers 
and have won awards and been acknowledged for being captivating teachers. And they, they can't even fathom what it would feel like to make six figures. I can't fathom what that would feel like. I don't disagree. What is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? I mean, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is one I've given several people. I just started giving this book out. It's the lives we actually have. I've given it to four people and it it just came out. It was during Lent. But it's a hundred blessings for imperfect days. And she's got like a, an index where you can basically find the day that you're experiencing and you read a blessing about it. And it is, they are the most beautifully written blessings that would probably that ruthless elimination of her in the lives we actually have would be my top two. What's an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? I mean, when my children go to bed, I love, (laughs) this is really kind of bizarre. I love strawberry jello with whipped cream. And like, I just will sit on the sofa and either be listening to something or be talking to my husband and have my sugar-free strawberry jello. It's like such a treat for me to have after the children. Like I cannot have it while the children are still awake because then I don't feel like I'm enjoying it. The most important question I'm about to ask you, is it whipped cream from a can or is it Cool Whip? (laughs) It is whipped cream from a can. Nice. And occasionally like when my son is like, smart mouth in me i'll pull that out and like you know <laughs> pop it in his mouth and spray it yeah definitely from the can and i don't want any of that dairy-free stuff like coconut milk whipped cream i want the real stuff give me the real stuff what advice would you give to a smart driven college student about to enter the real world i'm going to go back to collaboration i mean i think that Young people need to form partnerships with mentors, with people who do similar work and have found success, but also have, you know, the ability to like balance work and family life. That's the one thing that I've consistently done in every job is like find people who are already doing that job well and lean in on their expertise and experience. And I think it's really hard to do that with how many jobs are remote. You know, there's so many young people working from home and they don't have that community at, at work. And so I think you just have to create your own in those situations. What advice do you have to young families? We have said it so many times, but slow down. That's one piece of the puzzle that I find young families today struggling with. I mean, even, even me, like I think phones too are such a problem. We're just so connected all the time. And I'm a person who likes to be responsive, but it gets in the way of me being present with my kids after hours. And so I've been intentional about putting my phone up and not taking my phone places on the weekend where before I felt like I would always have it. Now I have to, it's an intentional practice to put it up and to leave and go and do our Saturday activities knowing I'm not connected. I think that's it. The Unplug first couple, and slow down. 
the first couple of times you do that, when you leave your phone, you get, you get like the itches. You're like, oh my gosh, where's my Oh, phone? yes. Yes. Um, and you, I have like anxiety about what am I going to return to? But oftentimes it's just group text messages that I don't even need to read. So, so and so love about text. that. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's very freeing to be like, oh, I missed 42 text messages and none of them are important. And honestly, it's very similar with email. I missed a hundred yeah. emails and two of them were important. And the two that were important, someone called me. I hadn't checked my email, but someone called me because it was that important. That important. I think that's why I like to pick up the phone versus send an email. If it's really important to me, I'm picking up the phone. Yeah. That's good advice. That should be the advice to the to the person entering the real world. Pick up the phone. You know what? <laughs> you you are exactly right. Like this is not to be handled over email. Well, Mary Catherine, thank you for being on. This has been such a fun conversation. I'm so grateful for your time, for your vulnerability, for sharing fun, serious, all things in between. So I'm just thankful that you that you spent the time today. And so we've built with Mary Catherine Connor. Mary Catherine, thanks for being on. Thank you so much, Clay. Hey, listener, it's Clay. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Build with Clay podcast. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen so you can discover all the episodes and hear from others about their growth journey. If you know me at all, you know that I love feedback. So please rate the episode and provide your comments so I can grow and be better for you and our guests. For more content, you can find Build With Clay on Instagram at buildwithclay and head to claydavis.substack.com where you can sign up for a bi-weekly newsletter sent directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're inspired to grow.